Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Today, I'm talking to a fitness fanatic and actress that most recently appeared on my favorite show, General Hospital, and who was diagnosed with a incompetent cervix, one of my favorite terms, 20 weeks into her first pregnancy. And she's an amazing human being. One of my other favorite things is that, that she doesn't have a TMI button. There's nothing we can't talk about. Brianna Henry, welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm very happy to be here. And cool. you're very pregnant. I am very pregnant. That is very true. <laughs> you're pretty soon. You're having your first kid. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. You're a whole bunch of cool things in one little package. Where are you from originally? Okay. So I'm originally from Miami, Florida, and I moved to LA 11 years ago. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm probably among the first to say that around here. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. I feel like LA is just a, I don't know, a more exciting version of Miami, which is hard to believe because a lot of people think Miami is pretty exciting, but not yeah, I don't know that much about Miami. I went there recently and I had to take a COVID test to get there and they only let you in if it's positive. Oh yeah. That seems like a thing there actually. It's yeah. a Florida thing. Yeah. They just pass it. <laughs> but it does seem like a happening place and LA is a happening place, but maybe with less humidity. Yeah. I would say my hair got significantly better when I moved to Los Angeles, which I was really grateful for. Mine started falling out, but I think it's just, <laughs> it would have anywhere. Uh, so welcome to LA. What brought you this way? Um, I actually uh, went to USC to get my BFA in theater. Um, I was really excited about being a Trojan and they had a great theater program. And so I was like, that is, I was actually really dramatic about it. I sent in some auditions and auditions for a couple of other schools while I was going to. And after my USC audition, which was my first audition, I told my mom that if I didn't get into USC, I was not meant to be an actress. And so I didn't go to any of my other auditions. Oh, wow. I very luckily got into the program. So it worked out. <laughs> What's that audition like? It was pretty terrifying. Now that I look back on it, I was very unprepared, you know, like people work with like coaches and stuff to get into college programs. And it was just kind of me. I think I like worked with maybe my high school drama teacher once or twice and did my monologues for her, but you just do a classical piece and a contemporary piece. And you go in front of this incredibly intimidating board of professors at USC. And it was actually, the audition was in New York and uh, you do some monologues. Wow. It sounds like monologue American Idol. It is. That's exactly what it is. Mm, show idea. Yeah. Mm, look at that. Interesting. Well, you did it. I mean, so you get to pick your monologues. Yeah. Yeah. You get to pick your monologues. Do you remember what you picked? <sighs> My contemporary was like this really weird, random play that like I was playing a detective and I, to this day, can't understand why I did it. And my other monologue Oh, I think it was Midsummer that I did. I I honestly don't even remember anymore. I think because I was shocked that I even got in. <laughs> <laughs> are they the kind of things that are recorded? Can we no. dig them up? Oh, oh you, can't they, you know, if they're recorded, they never gave it to us. I'm going to go dig it up on the Freedom of Information Act or something. Yeah, you should like, you can probably Google that and find it on some. Yeah, you can Google anything. I'll put it's it on true. my TikTok just as a warning to anybody who's going to look for it. I don't have TikTok. I had to delete mine. It was sucking up too much life. I think after, uh, what's that little one with the ghost? 
Oh, well, Snapchat. Snapchat. I think Snapchat came along and they were like, yeah, you're too old for social media now. So <laughs> everything after that. I couldn't even figure out how to use Snapchat. And I'm afraid of ghosts. So Yeah, it wasn't my favorite platform either. So you come here, you go to USC, but somehow, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a fitness guru. Oh, gosh. That's a really sweet way of putting it. I, I was like a soul cycle fanatic. It was just something that really helped with like my life, my depression, college. And when I was graduating, I was, you know, lost and was like, what do I do? I'm not booking anything. And I was in a soul cycle class and this amazing instructor at the time, the senior instructor called me out after class and talked to me. He was like, do you want to be an instructor? Like, do you want to audition for, to be an instructor? And I was like, no. And he (laughs) (laughs) followed up with me like several times. And I finally was like, okay, like, why not? I can keep my body in shape while I audition. And I told them, I was like, I'm an actor. Like, that's what I'm determined to do. So as long as this doesn't interfere and they were awesome about it and let me teach and audition. Did you have to audition to become an instructor? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you mixed your two favorite things. Yeah, totally. Um, What is that audition like? (laughs) Um, You know, it is like literally like we're in a dark room and you're in front of all the other people that are auditioning. And I think similarly, I think you pick two different songs and, you know, in soul cycle, there's like all these different like rhythms of which you ride your bike. So you have to pick like a fast song and a slow song and you kind of like coach the group that's in front of you through the song. And because I had just taken so many soul cycle classes, I kind of knew what I was doing a little bit just from like memory. And I don't remember if we had any kind of preliminary training before that. I think we just audition and you come in with your songs and maybe there was like a couple of meetings before to kind of tell us what it was going to be like. And it's interesting. My best friend, Tiffany Daniels, she was in the audition with me. I met her there and she's this, you know, beautiful light biracial and I was like you know in the audition world you see someone that looks like you like oh there's not enough room for me and so she went to go audition I was like well there goes my spot and we both got it <laughs> and oh, she's my sister now <laughs> um because you're doing classes on a regular basis is that all you need for working out I mean if you're being healthy about it now like you should probably be doing a more full body workout because they're, you know, you do the same workout over and over and over again, your body just gets so adapted to it that you're not actually really growing or expanding. Mm. So I was probably in the best shape physically, but I was just getting wrecked. Like also I was, I think I went to the emergency room three different times the last year I taught because I'm also immune compromised. And I just don't think my body had enough time to like catch up. Yeah. yeah, I was teaching like, you know, anywhere from nine to like 13 classes a week. Holy cow. That's incredible. In all your classes, has anyone taking your class ever toppled over on the bike? You know, I had no medical emergencies in my classes. I don't think I had some like professional football players sometimes that would come in that looked real on the edge, which was really surprising always. Cause I'm like, you guys do way harder stuff than this, but yeah. there's something about a soul cycle bike that just like really messes you up. <laughs> I feel like I might be the only one who's ever done this, but I was like on a fitness kick, lost a little weight, started to move around a little bit. I looked in the window at my gym and they were doing a cycling class. It yeah. wasn't soul cycle. 
And I was like, okay, tomorrow I'll try that. And it's a multi-use like function room. So they do kickboxing in there. They do all sorts of stuff. So the bikes are in the corner. You're going to like go grab one and line it up. And then she's like, I don't know why she took an interest in me. And she's like, come on, up out of the saddle. And she's yelling at me faster, faster, faster. And my bike starts wobbling side to side. And I'm already kind of embarrassed because I'm not the exercise class kind of guy. I was just getting into fitness and I'm socially awkward. I always assume everybody else in the class like knows each other and I'm the outsider. And I don't want to like look bad. So I'm up out of my saddle and all of a sudden my bike topples over to the side. Oh, yes. And I'm a big guy, big fall, huge boom. I'm like sort of mortified, but, and I don't blame her for this. I don't blame her. But what happened was like when I went down, she gave off this huge laugh into that little microphone. So it's just like a little headset. Yeah. Like magnified for everyone to hear that laugh. I do it too. Like if something startling happens, even if it's bad, I don't know why my reaction is just a laugh, a loud laugh. And it's gotten me into trouble many times. Like I can't control it. It's not that it's funny. It's just my relief. Instead of like, (gasps) I giggle. My mom does the same thing. I get it. Yeah. I one time accidentally closed the trunk of our car into my wife's head and I just laughed and, you know, (laughs) it was a lot of repair that. work on the relationship. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how much time did you have to put in to repair that one? <laughs> yeah, so I haven't been back to a cycling class since that happened. It can be tragic for some people. Yeah, I got rid of Soul Cycle and just picked up Krispy Kreme. And uh, yeah, it's pretty delicious. I live right by a donut friend and I'm there way too often. That's what I'm saying. That donut kind of reminds me of the wheel of the spin bike. It's about uh, the same. It's yeah, about a little same. triggering, actually, something. Yeah. <laughs> okay gosh i'm gonna run out of time because you're amazing so a few more things before we go to the meat of the issue uh you have a husband how'd you meet we met on bumble the dating app ah. <laughs> yeah very strange did you go out with other people on bumble first oh my gosh so many people oh, i was his God. first online date ever though so oh. i was his first and he was probably going to be my last and i really tried to bail on it and my best girlfriends pretty much forced me to go on the date because they were just like he's so cute and look he had like on his profile that he went to juilliard but he was a florist and they just thought that was so funny oh okay like i'll go he's on the date. florist <laughs> yeah right no okay. i would love that but he's um, a composer for TV, yes so. he's brilliant <laughs> he's fun to talk to also and he's so like chill, but he's so talented. Yeah. Look at you. Your, your baby is going to be enormous talent between the two of you. <laughs> I hope so. I really secretly hope she wants to be like a rocket scientist or something like nothing to do with either of our skill sets. Maybe she'll play a musically inclined rocket scientist on TV. That would be cute. Yeah. Especially if she's on contract. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so you met on Bumble and then you dated a lot of guys from there. So what made this one different? Like you really locked it in. You know, I think he was so kind. I was actually still teaching at soul cycle and I was kind of on the fence about how I was feeling about him. And I got really sick. I got like food poisoning or something. I was throwing up. I had to go home from work. And I think we had only been talking to each other for a couple of weeks. We had maybe had one date 
And, you know, he called me and I was like, I'm really sick. You know, I look like a wet rat. My hair is just like wet from the shower. I'm throwing up and just all kinds of disaster. And he's like, well, I'm going to come over and bring you stuff. And I was like, no, 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 like you don't have to do that. And he was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to come. And next thing I know, he like shows up with things that don't even make sense for my symptoms from CVS, just like half of CVS. Oh, like, puts it all on my desk and fell asleep that night with him and my best friend like stroking my hair and like rubbing me to sleep and I was I woke up the next day and I was like oh I guess I should really take this seriously and now now here we are all married and super pregnant and super pregnant with this child and you're collaborating. Are you collaborating together on a project? Yes. So he was commissioned to write a horn concerto for the LA Phil that just was performed at Disney Hall in wow. November. Yeah. And we accompanied it with a bunch of music from TV shows that he's done that were really moving to him. And he asked me to help him produce and direct them. And so I got my first introduction into directing a bunch of a series of short films for the, the show. Wow, that's so cool. You guys are producing a lot this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We started a production company called Etal Studios. I guess it was last year. We had both really been into producing and wanting to make our own content. So we were like, why not now? And now you reproduced and made some sort of content. We really made some sort of content. Something coming soon. (laughs) Um, How long have you guys been together now? Been together five years. I thought you were going to say five months. I was like, wow. (laughs) We moved fast. <laughs> yeah, really fast. Uh, five years. And then was like baby something that you were both interested in early on? It was definitely something we were both interested in. I think we were both really excited about kids and that time of life. She was very unplanned. <laughs> I would say that. You know, we were being reckless. So, you know, when you're doing that, you're like, oh, this could happen. But we did not expect it to happen in the timeliness that it did. Okay. <laughs> recklessness but i'm trying to get the thought process so it sounds like you're saying we knew this could happen yeah and we didn't like go the extra mile to prevent it so it sounds like you were okay like if the universe decided we needed a musical actress or actor then you'd be okay with it so does that mean before that were you not being reckless you know i was on birth control until a couple of months leading up to, we got married in 2020, in June. And so a couple of months leading up, you know, I have depression. I felt like my birth control was like exasperating it. I had all these other symptoms from taking birth control for years. And so I was kind of like, let me purge, get off this birth control. And, you know, we kind of agreed that maybe when I turned 30, we would start really kind of planning out when to have this baby. I um, mean, I just turned 30 like two weeks ago. Happy birthday. Um, Thank you. And so we weren't too far off the mark, but we kind of had a conversation and we were just like, all right, you know, if we continue in this way, we could get pregnant. How do we feel about this? And we were both like, we're okay with it. Like, I don't think it's going to happen, but you know, you always hear people be like, yeah, I had to try for so long. And, you know, we did this and who would have thought that, you know, really like, I think we were really reckless. Like, I don't know, the year and a half that I was off birth control, maybe three times. And this one stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Why would you think you wouldn't get pregnant? You know, I think that my mom, I well, both of our moms, I had quite a journey with their getting pregnancy journey. And so 
you know, I, I think both of us kind of were under the interpretation that it may take some effort. We might have to, you know, investigate if we could, how we could. Like I don't medically? Think either, yeah, like medically. Like, I don't think either of us thought it would be super easy because both of our mothers had a hard time, like getting pregnant, staying pregnant. And we were both just cautious. We were mentally preparing ourselves and emotionally preparing ourselves that it could be quite a journey, especially like we have so many friends and things you read online of people that really have to invest time and energy into making it work. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, how did you realize you were pregnant? When I realized I was pregnant, I was only four weeks pregnant. And yeah, I'm really in touch with my body. I feel like I can tell the second I'm getting sick. I just knew something was kind of off and I was spotting. And even though I had been on birth control for too long to be spotting at this point, and even when I was on birth control, my periods were super regular. When I got off birth control, my periods were still super regular. And so it was strange that I was spotting for a couple of days. Before you expected your cycle or after? Because if you were four weeks. Oh, okay. So just leading up to then pretty close. I would it was imagine. leading up. It was like pretty close. I may have been a little under four weeks and Chris had just left out of town to go do on a project that he's working on to go on um, a road trip. And I took a test like super casually and left it in the bathroom, like went to go walk my dog, completely forgot about it. And then kind of went back and picked it up and it was like pregnant. And I was like, Oh, wow. pregnant. <laughs> and I just kind of like sat there for a second and like did some like deep breathing and I FaceTimed him and I must have looked just shocked because he was like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, what, what's going on? And I was like, and I showed him the test and he just started crying. He was so happy. Oh. He was like, Oh my gosh. And I'm sitting there like, you're happy. Like, are we happy? Like, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> um, had you taken tests before? Like after other oh, reckless yeah. things? Oh yeah. So oh. you expected it to just be negative like the other ones. Totally. I, I mean, like I'm like a paranoid freak. I think I was taking pregnancy tests before I was having sex. Like I was just always like thinking I was pregnant. Like, I <laughs> guess you reason. wouldn't be the first one. Yeah. <laughs> maybe the second, but all right brianna let's take a little break we have a lot of important stuff to talk about because 20 weeks into your pregnancy you found out there's a potential complication or issue and uh, you keep throwing around this depression word uh you don't sound like you're a depressed person obviously it's something you've struggled with for a while and that always means some highs and lows and pregnancy and parenthood could have contributing factors there as well so We're going to talk about it all. We'll be right back with Brianna Henry. (laughs) Hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient needed, the supplement brand I trust created their brand new Omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and 
third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Brianna Henry. Okay, let's talk about this. You have an idea on birth. And we'll start there because then we'll see how your pregnancy uh, curveballs affect that one way or another. So what was your uh, thought, your plan? I want to have this baby. You know, there's so many choices at home, in the hospital, more medical, more natural, even if you're in the hospital with drugs, without drugs, partial drugs, vaginally, cesarean, so many choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in my head, when I pictured pregnancy, I always imagined I probably have a home birth. You know, I'm kind of uh, my husband and I are both, I would say 95% vegan since I've been pregnant. I've thrown eggs back into my diet and honey, but um, I was oh, especially the honey, you're a horrible person. I know I'm killing the bees. Kills Can I make a recommendation right here? People always say, why don't vegans eat honey? And my son, Hootie the foodie has a podcast about it and it's kind of entertaining and informative at the same time. I don't usually do plugs, but it's called Hootie the Foodie, H-U-D-I, the Foodie, F-O-O-D-I-E. Look for the episode with Kate Mayer, who's a vegan, and they have a really wonderful conversation about it. Okay, but uh, now you're you're being a horrible person. You're having uh, honey and yes. eggs. I'm a monster. Sweet and, eggs. Yeah, and I mean, I try to do, you know. As, as ethical as I can, but I keep telling Chris, we need to get a chicken so that I can love the chicken mm. and feel like we have this like equal exchange that's going on. But that's another story. Mm. When you say that. we should get chicken, when I say we should get chicken, it's not the same. It's not the same. I don't right now, mine is on Postmates. <laughs> and so Chris and I both like, you know, are, are pretty eco-friendly, socially aware of our impact on the environment and all of these things. And more than anything, I just think that medicine and hospitals are not really my favorite place. My stepfather was a paraplegic. He had an accident when I was eight or nine. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in and out of hospitals with him. And it just, it was not my favorite place growing up. And so I kind of never imagined that my pregnancy would be in a hospital, but because of this um, unexpected situation with this short cervix of mine and my cervical surclage that I had to get at week 20, um, it kind of just pushed me a little more into that direction, as well as having some preliminary tests even before the surclage that kind of put my platelets into question. They weren't super low, but they were low enough where I've had to monitor them throughout my pregnancy just to make sure that they were staying at a, a healthy level. And so it's been kind of recommended that it makes sense for me to give birth in a hospital. Okay. Your platelets just came in low. You didn't have that before pregnancy, as far as you know? I actually did. Oh, you do? Before. Yeah. Oh, so nobody I would have... ever guess you're thrombocytopenic because of all your personality. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I will take that. I've never had any real signs of it being an issue, but other than this, like one test that I took in 2017, where my platelets were kind of wonky. And then when I got pregnant, I went to go get my platelets done. And my primary was like, you should go see a hematologist just in case. I think that this could like 
be affected by pregnancy and maybe be an issue for you, which it truly hasn't been. My platelets have kind of like lived around like 117 for the most part, 116, but they've been monitoring it. And in pregnancy, has it stayed stable? Yeah, it actually has. It's like fluctuated a couple of numbers, but nothing that's close enough to them being alarmed by me having to have any kind of surgery or anything like that. And we mentioned the cerclage. So your cervix you found was short. I mean, at 20 weeks, who's looking at the cervix? Uh, So I was seeing uh, my specialist, Dr. Khalil Tabish. And my OB, Dr. Samsa Mercy, she kind of recommends that you see the specialist before there's even an issue. I think it's just kind of a precautionary thing. And um, I think I saw him at 12 weeks and everything was fine. And then I went back at 20 weeks and he was like, oh, your cervix is a little short. That's something we should definitely keep an eye on. On an ultrasound? Yeah. He actually did a, I think it was a transvaginal ultrasound because he was trying to do an external ultrasound on my stomach and couldn't really see my cervix. Mm. So they had to do a transvaginal ultrasound. And he was like, yeah, your your cervix, I think, I want to say my cervix was 2.3 centimeters when I saw him. And I guess what's normal is why I think it's uh, above 2.5, but up to like four or something like that. Very close. Yeah. So very close. And he was like, okay, so this isn't something, you know, to totally be alarmed about yet. He was like, let's prescribe you some progesterone suppositories that you'll insert vaginally for the time being. And we'll see if your cervix, I want you to come back every week for the next couple of weeks to see if your cervix significantly shortens or if it kind of stays the same. And so um, I had an appointment, I think about a week later and my cervix had shortened to 1.6 centimeters. Oh, well, that is not close. Yeah, it was a jump. And so he was a little alarmed by the jump, called my gyno, and she was kind of like, you should do the cerclage. And he was like, you should do the cerclage. And he was like, can you do it tonight? And I was oh, like, wow. can I figure out what to do with my dog first, please? Oh. And so, Such a responsible pet owner. I really try. She's, you know, I've kept her alive for almost eight years. I'm really on a roll. (laughs) (laughs) And we scheduled it for the next day. And yeah, and I got that bad boy put in there. Uh, The bad boy. Had you had transvaginal ultrasounds before that? I have actually. I had one. um, I thought I would maybe had endometriosis because I've had really painful periods off and on throughout my life. Once I went on birth control, they stopped. But prior to that, I was having painful periods. And my OB has actually known me since I was like 18. And so, yeah, I've actually known her, I think, before I was even on birth control. And so she ended up doing a transvaginal ultrasound, I think, then. But I think that might have been the only time that I had had that. Okay, two questions in my mind. One is, after you stopped birth control, did the painful periods come back? We didn't. Oh, that's wonderful. I had more cramping for sure, but they actually weren't as heavy um, or as painful as they had been prior to. And maybe that's because I was young and my body was like acclimating. I don't know. On a scale of one to 10 for you, how comfortable or uncomfortable is a transvaginal ultrasound if uncomfortable is 10 i would say it's only about a four or four and a half not too bad yeah i mean everybody perceives them differently and they're probably also practitioner skill 
But yeah. um, I know that when we talk about things like putting in a Foley balloon and other things like that, some people are like, oh, it was no big deal. And other people are like, it's the worst thing I ever felt in my whole life. So Totally. I mean, even with the surplus, I've like, I was doing so much research trying to understand what, <laughs> what the hell it was when they told me about it. And, you know, I think the recovery time for most people was like two, three days. And I felt messed up from that for like a week. Well, let's talk about the surplus. They're basically sewing your cervix closed. <laughs> and I don't know much about them, but you did mention recently that there are a couple different kinds. Yeah. So the two that I'm familiar with, the McDonald's, from my understanding, is the most common kind. And then there's another one that, uh, to my understanding, is a bit more invasive, and it's a shared car. Pretty sure that's how shared you car. pronounce it. Ooh. Yeah. It sounds like a fast food restaurant and a fancy like <laughs> French French cuisine or something. Yeah, with like a Chevrolet outside or something. Yeah, that uh, and that French one's gonna be a lot more intense. Yes. When you get the bill, especially. Okay, so are there pros and cons to each? And were they presented to you like to make a choice? Hey, which one do you want? You know, I have to say, I do wish that that was, I think because of the urgency in which the procedure was wanting to be had, I didn't feel like I was as thoroughly walked through what it was going to be like per se and what my choices um, with the surclage were. I do wish that that had been communicated a little more clearly to me, even maybe during the procedure as well. But I am an avid reader and researcher <laughs> so i kind of had an idea of what was going to happen and what it was going to be like i know that this shared car surclage because it's a bit more extensive from my reading of it it seems like you can actually keep it in for multiple pregnancies end up having cesareans to remove the baby oh. uh, that's kind of an interesting fact about that one that i i read on the internet and that's it, the one you got so what was interesting is I actually, I don't know if it was because I was drugged and couldn't remember or what it was, but I actually don't know if I was ever totally informed of which one I was getting. Oh. And so I actually today kind of probed and was like, which one did I get, by the way? Because with the McDonald, a lot of the time you can go into to get it removed. You just go in as a you know outpatient at your OBs um, or your specialist MFM's office, and they can actually remove it in the office. And it's painful and uncomfortable, but it's nothing that you can't handle is what it seems. With the shared car, you often have to go under anesthetic because it can be very painful. Oh. And so I was told that, you know, to my understanding, Dr. Tavish, part of, you know, his renownedness and part of the reason why people come from all over to go to him is because his surclages have quite a reputation of being highly successful. Oh. And I think he kind of does his own flair on the surclage. I don't know. Oh. A combination of the two or exactly what it is, it hasn't really fully been explained to me. <laughs> but <laughs> I know that I have to be under anesthesia to get it removed. So, so you were under anesthesia to put it in? Yeah. Yeah. I had to get a spinal in my uh, Oh, so you were awake. I was awake. Yeah, I wasn't. But you're numb down. from like the chest down. Yeah. Did you feel anything happening? You know, I could feel like a banging sensation. And I think that's more like 
sonically I could hear what was like happening. So I don't know how much of that was like, I could feel it or I could just hear that there was something. I was also sitting there imagining what he was doing the whole time. <laughs> That's what I would be doing. You know, I was like, is this the part where he's like stitching the cervix? Is, is that like, oh, what is that? So, you know, I was kind of trying to suss out what was happening down there. I could feel pressure. That was mostly what I could feel. I, I could definitely feel that he was in there. I mean, you have depression. Do you have anxiety? You know, I do have anxiety. I would say my depression's a little stronger than my anxiety. But I will say, I think that getting the surclage was probably one of the most terrifying things that I've personally had to experience. And I think in part, it was just because of the circumstances in which it all went down. It was all very fast. It was just all very fast and, and a bit scary. And, you know, Dr. Tavish has so many patients. And because he's a high risk MFM, like, he has a bunch of people that are needing things from him and he had checked me into the hospital. I think I had, I got checked in at 11 and um, was supposed to have my procedure around like four or five, I think. And I didn't end up having the procedure until one o'clock in the morning because oh, wow. he wow. had a, I think it was an emergency cesarean and another delivery. So it pushed my procedure back quite a few hours. So I hadn't eaten for over 10 hours. Oh, you can't eat before that one, even though you're awake? Yeah, I guess just because it's still um, some form of epidural or, you know, spinal that's going into the spine, they don't want you to eat. I always thought it was just general, but. Had you ever had a spinal before? No. Oh, okay. I've so... had surgery before. Surgery. Oh, no surgery. Well, oh, right. This is kind of like a pretty minor surgery. I mean, is that No. I guess it's minor. I mean, I think the added element of having to get the spinal makes it feel not as minor, but I would say the recovery time is not typically super long. So uh, we have a whole episode also on anesthesia for mostly for labor and delivery with Dr. Mark Zakowski, uh, different types of epidurals and spinals. And he kind of explains the difference between a spinal block and an epidural. You know, with the help of Google, I'm going to try to see the pronunciation of that surclage that you got there. Let's see what it says here. The following pronunciation is Shirodkar. Oh. Shirodkar. Shirodkar. That's way fancier than the way I was. Shirodkar. So you got a mix between McDonald and Shirodkar. From my understanding. You got McRoadkar. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like the tab car, the tabish. I don't know. Okay. You got something. Well, what was the spinal like for you getting it? Oh man, it was weird. I think it brought up a lot of like triggered feelings, mostly because my stepfather, like I mentioned, was a, a paraplegic. So I think the idea of like, I spent so much of my childhood with him not feeling sensation in his legs and, you know, this traumatic experience of like losing sensation from the waist oh, down. Right. And so I think that there was something psychologically that was very like unnerving for me to have to do that, but it just felt like a lot of pressure. The actual like injection in my back, it wasn't too bad. The anesthesiologist was so, so nice and like really comforting actually. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, They're yeah. supposed to be comforting. Are you a, like a needle person? Like, like them neutral, hate them? You know, I decided a long time ago that I just needed to be chill about it. Like I used to cry every time I got a shot when I was like young, even bleeding into the teens. And then one day I was like, you have to stop this. So <laughs> like, this is oh. enough. Like you're going to need to do this. I need to try that on some things about myself. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's like maybe one of the only things that's worked for me though. Oh, I, I gotta find my thing. If that's yeah, if I can get one thing off my list just by saying, you know what, you're done. Ah, you're, just, you're being ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't love needles. I was really scared about the spinal, but it mostly just felt like a lot of like pressure, like people like sitting on your back the second mm. they kind of put it in you, and then you just start to lose sensation in your legs, and that's freaky. Oh. And then afterwards, once it wore off, you said the recovery is like a few days. Yeah, I think they say it's supposed to be like two to three days. I felt pretty messed up for like a week. What does messed up mean? Well, the next morning after the procedure, I just was throwing up. Oh. Um, Yeah, I think it was like a combination of antibiotics that I had to take because of the procedure and not having eaten for so many hours in a row. There was at least one nursing shift, like um, rotation. So I think that there wasn't a great track of like what I was eating when I was eating. And so I think that I just went way too long without food to have all that stuff pumped in me. And like I said, I I don't know the last time I took antibiotics, it's been years. Um, And then I had hydrocodone after the procedure for pain. And I'm pretty sensitive to medication. And, you know, I like couldn't feel my legs when I came out of the procedure. I was just like in so much pain. And the nurse was like, you know, what do you want? Like, do you want this medication or hydrocodone? And I was like, well, which one's going to make me not feel this? (laughs) And she was like this one. And, you know, didn't know that I hadn't eaten for so long. And so I was just so sick. And then days after I left the hospital and didn't take any of the hard drugs that were going to help take away the pain that I could have gotten. Cause I was like, no, I don't want to do that. So I, I can't remember what I took. It was like Tylenol strength or something and it didn't do anything. And I never knew where my cervix was in my body until after this procedure. Oh. I was like, Oh, it's right there. <laughs> like, it was painful afterwards. It was so painful. It just felt achy. My back ached, I think because of the spinal I was really itchy after, which is another symptom of epidurals. Uh, like your body was itchy, not like your yeah, was itchy. My body was really itchy. I was just in like achy pain. I think I cried for like a couple of days. Mm. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> wow. That's intense. And then so that just lasts for a few days for you? Yeah, it just lasted for a few days. I was pretty terrified to poop, to be honest with you. because I was of- wondering like all that stuff. Yeah, you're not like supposed to, you know, when you get the surclage, I was told I, I could not have intercourse. I wasn't allowed to drive a car for some reason, which I don't know if it's just like wanted. I pretty much put on like low activity. I know. Um, I'm just trying to picture what those two have in common. Right. I'm like, I'm <laughs> curious. Like, um, I'd like to hear. Drive that kind of intensity. <laughs> right. Like some kind of like intense adrenaline. And I couldn't work out at all. I was told I could not work out. No, that's your thing. That's my thing. You're a worker out or other than driving the rest of those activities sound like things that help combat uh, depression. They totally do. So is there something you can shift to that? kind of takes that place man i think that honestly i'm still figuring that out and i'm almost not pregnant anymore i mean it was really hard i'd been working out you know four to six times a week for the last 
eight years of my life. And before that had been an athlete my whole life. So moving is like my medicine. And it was really, really difficult to not have that as a resource anymore. You know, even prior to the surclash, I had a couple of depressive episodes, but they were fairly light. But I would say the last couple of months, it got a bit heavier just because I think I had been on low activity now for so many months, you know, you miss like the intimacy. I actually was told my OB gets a kick out of this because my specialist, Dr. Tabish, kind of told me to steer clear of orgasms Okay. because, you know, it contracts your cervix. Yeah, and especially while you're driving. Especially while you're driving. Yeah. And he, you know, told me that it could cause a lot of discomfort and a lot of cramping. And I kind of was just like, I, you know, I researched my life away and I asked my OB and she was like, you can orgasm. It's okay. And I decided that I just at least had to give myself that if I could not have intercourse with my husband, you know, and that's been difficult too. It's like, I miss him. You know, it's been a long time. Wait, he's not allowed to play a role? In- he can, he can play a role as long as, you know, where he stays out but as long as it's like pg-13 ish oh yeah yeah PG, uh, tv 14 uh on the border um, i don't know but the other question is yeah so you it's not the same yeah no it's it's definitely not the same and i think you know it was also a transition of i'm the first of you know i have i have these amazing mom girlfriends that I've kind of started collecting in the past really couple of years, but those relationships have really been deepened after this experience. But of my you know best girlfriends, I'm the first one to get pregnant. So I think that there was also quite an isolation in that too, that I didn't feel totally like I could be related to. And so I kind of reached out to some of these women that had started becoming moms for, you know, first and second times and found a lot of comfort in some of their experiences and their understanding of how difficult all of this can be. Here's the situation that I have. My situation is I'm feeling a little bit like Joe Rogan right now in the sense that I have so much more to talk to you about, but we're running out of time. So I feel like we should have a fourth segment. I'm down. If you got the time. So we're going to take a break and go into the third segment. And then we're going to have a bonus segment with Brianna. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are schmoozing with Brianna Henry, and it's the uh, Brianna Henry experience. We're doing the long form today. I like that. Okay. So many things going on here. So if we could recap, you went to school to be an actor and you succeeded. You got the audition down pat, then you auditioned to be a fitness instructor. Then you did that for a while. Then you started, oh, acting. So how did acting take off for you? So I ended up getting a manager. I think it was my junior year of college. And he kind of took me on as a developmental client, which pretty much means that I don't know what I'm doing. And he's helping me understand what to do in audition rooms. And um, I eventually booked Young and the Restless, the soap opera, my senior year of college. And, you know, my program was pretty intense about not working while you were in school, mostly because they didn't want to interfere with classes. 
And I got so lucky. I was only supposed to be on the show for like two episodes, but they liked the character and they kept me on for 16. And oh, wow. every episode that we shot, shot on a day that I was not in class. <gasps> wow. Meant to be. The universe was really, really helping me out there. So are you a soap up- fan prior to being on one? No, I had never seen a soap before. Oh, wow. It's because it's a very specific genre. Very specific. I mean, I think I had seen it in like doctor's offices or like, you know, in and out of the places where soap operas are on every day. Um, but no, I, I never watched one. And it was a really like intense awakening to like what this industry was because they're fast. <laughs> they're so fast. They produce um, them fast or what do you yeah. mean? Yeah, you produce them. I mean, there would sometimes be days on General Hospital where I would shoot at most like four episodes a day um, where like you're shooting like chunks of the episodes. Mm-hmm you're just like in so many different storylines and it's crazy. I think it's crazy. <laughs> I was a theater major, but uh, you know, we did plays. So you had like six months to figure out your character and get into it and rehearse and whatever. Great. Like how could you even really get into it with uh, that speed? Yeah. You kind of just have to commit really hard i mean it's so fast there were days where i was memorizing on a really hard day i was memorizing sometimes you know 50 pages of dialogue a day like holy moly that's terrifying to me yeah it was it was super terrifying and on young and the restless i was just um, a recurring guest star so i didn't have that much responsibility and after YNR, I kind of had that like dip where I wasn't booking anything and I got out of college and I was feeling really confident because I had an agent because of the show and didn't book anything. And then I finally booked a sitcom called Undateable on, I think it was on NBC. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was on that for a couple of episodes. Is that around the time you were on Bumble? I might have been. I might have been on Bumble during that time. I was on Bumble for a little while. Dateable. Kind of off and on. You know, kind of off and on. Dateable and undateable at the same time. Dateable and undateable at the same time. It's like putting a humidifier and dehumidifier in the same room. Exactly. Okay, so how was that? It's very different format. So different. I really loved sitcoms. It was actually so fun. I mean, all those guys are stand-up comedians, so they were just so funny. And I had such an appreciation for the craft of comedy. I ended up taking some UCB improv classes after that because it was just so awesome. And and booked a couple of guest stars after that. I did an episode of Insecure and I was on uh, Shameless. And then I ended up booking a series regular for General Hospital, which was my first series regular job, which was awesome. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Are there things that would come up that would make you nervous? Like, I don't know if I can do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I think that like, you know, my first day on General Hospital, my um, executive producer, (laughs) he's great. All I had to do was like sit in a chair. I had a lot of words on my first day, but I was like sitting in a chair and I had to like pick up a phone. And he comes up to me after I've done it like once or twice. And he's like, can you sit more gracefully? Can you just like, (laughs) and I think it's like, I was shaking. I was just so nervous because I had never had the weight of like a series regular character on my back before. And I was a recast because soaps are weird and they recast people for like a bajillion years. So the woman I recast had been on the show for like five years and everyone loved her and fans were just like pissed off that she was leaving and it was a lot of pressure. So it took a while for me to win people over. And I think that I just did as I left. (laughs) Oh, you won me over in like 30 seconds. Thank you. (laughs) 
in those soaps, is there any room for ad-libbing or you got to stick hard to the script? Um, you know, I think it depends on who you are, right? If you're like one of the OGs and like the stars of the show, there's definitely a lot more wiggle room for you to kind of do your own thing. But when you are like a me coming in and kind of fresh and green, you try to stay as close to the script as you can. I mean, um, the writers and, and our EP were really great about, you know, if you have an issue with any of the dialogue or something, you can kind of chat with them and they'll maybe make tweaks here and there. But they really try to stick to what it is that's being written for you most of the time. Sweet. And then have you been working pregnant? No. So I actually got pregnant. I think it was a month, two months before I left GH. I had already made the decision that I was leaving the show. My contract was up. Then I found out I was pregnant and was like, well, that's interesting. Like I was expecting to be propelled back into the industry and auditioned my life away. And when you're contracted, it's difficult to audition for other things. So I was really excited to get back out there. And, you know, I came home to Chris and I was crying and I was like, should I just resign my contract? Like, I don't know what to do. And he was like, no, like trust that, you know, you'll have the baby. It's kind of great timing and we'll figure it out. After oh, so you got, I mean, it's nice though, to be able to chill during your pregnancy. It was so nice. And I tried, I was stubborn. I think I auditioned pretty much up until I had the surclage put in, which was five months. And it was just like impossible. I was auditioning for things and it was like, oh, you know, the window of shooting is between November and, you know, January. And it's like, I'm going to look really different from November to January. So you can't book me in this. So we just decided for me to chill. Chill. Well, that's good. And now you're also working on producing. So uh, yeah. it's, it's a different element of the industry. Totally. Before we get back into you and your pregnancy and uh, your plans for your upcoming birth, I have one question, an observation. Like you mm-hmm. have anxiousness and depression. Do you feel like the comedy people have more anxiety and depression than the drama people? Or am I just making that up? Honestly, I just feel like artists in general are prone to like, I just think they're deep feeling people, you know, it seems like there's a lot of comedians that have some heavy things that they're always moving through. But I mean, you can look at like a Philip Seymour Hoffman or Heath Ledger, like all these amazing dramatic actors that were also just so burdened by their minds and, you know, their hearts and I think that it's just when you're an empath and you're creative and feel a lot, it's sometimes hard to process. Mm, That's a very good, fair point. I was just hoping that my anxiety will help me become a better comedian. (laughs) I probably will. I feel like some have some real bad anxiety. That's great, because after my COVID experience, I feel very funny. Yeah, you've made me laugh quite a lot. Oh, hashtag mutual. (laughs) All right, we're going to get back into your pregnancy. You know, the idea that your legs went numb and your stepfather had paralysis in his legs. First of all, if we go back just a little bit, your parents separated when you were young? Yeah. So my parents got divorced when I was, I think I was five, but they're best friends to this day. When my dad comes into town, he often stays at my mom's house. That's so weird. 
it's so weird and they're like you know I, it's funny i can't even really ever imagine them married because they're just much better off as friends <laughs> but yeah they they have a pretty great co-parenting relationship unmarriable yes <laughs> so they're good co-parents and then your mom remarried yes my and mom then, remarried. how old were you then I think it was a couple of years after her and my dad divorced. So maybe I was like seven or something like that. She's going to hear this and be like, Brianna, you were this age. Are you crazy? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but- seriously. Who are you? Where do you, you come from? You know yourself. <laughs> so when she married him, he wasn't paralyzed. No, he got paralyzed eight months after they got married. Oh, my. And you were still very young then. Yeah, I was still still very young. How did it happen? Um, he was playing basketball um, at his boss's house in California, and we were living in Miami at the time, and he was on a business trip, and he was going up for a layup and got pushed, just, you know, basketball push, and they were kind of playing on this, like, steep, I don't want to call it a cliff, but, like, elevated layer that was, like, 35 feet above the ground below, And there was no fencing to my understanding. And so he kind of fell through some concrete on his head, um, 35 feet and broke his back and got a lot of concussions. Wow. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So like with that experience, that trauma for your whole family and then growing up with everything that surrounds that it makes sense that you'd be extra sensitive to uh starting to not be able to feel your legs use your legs totally yeah and i didn't even really think about it until i talked to my therapist and she was like yeah brianna that makes sense and i was yeah. like wow oh, yeah, i guess oh, it does. Nice. there's some logic to all <laughs> yeah. all right let's take another break and then get to uh pick up where we left off with your surclage And uh, now that you're getting close, what your plans are like for your upcoming birth. We'll be right back. (laughs) Welcome back to the fourth bonus segment with our conversation with Brianna Henry. And it's the fourth out of at least seven because she's going to come back after she has the baby and tell us how everything went down. Absolutely. So you have the surclage, and now it's time to get it out. You found out that your mix of surclage techniques means that you don't really have a choice, right? you got to go another spinal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been advised to do it with some kind of anesthetic. Yeah, and just like a little injection wouldn't help. It's got to be like uh, the full Monty there. I guess so. Hmm. Okay. And... Um, What do they expect after they take it out will happen? First of all, is there a recovery period from having it removed? Yeah, they said a couple of days, kind of like the first one, which because it was more than a couple of days, I'm kind of like mentally preparing for like more than a couple of days. But, you know, everyone seems really chill about it, which is kind of making me feel freaked out. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they're all like, yeah, the baby shouldn't come like right away. My OB was like, you know, I've never had a surclage patient have the baby like right away after getting the surclage removed. Dr. Tavish is like, it's going to be cool. Like everyone seems like I could carry this baby to full term potentially. So Um, I don't want to 
put this idea into the universe, but I've had several patients with surclash uh, early on, like in that same time zone, early second trimester, that had it removed around 37 weeks or so, and then went to like 41 weeks and they were threatening induction. Really? Yeah. So That's interesting. You get the excitement on both sides. Yeah. Um, so who knows? They're going to take it out. They don't think the baby will fall out. You'll be around 37 weeks when they take it out? Yeah, I'll be around probably. Oh, actually, uh, they just scheduled it for this weekend. So oh. I'll be just before 37 weeks. I'll be like two, three days before 37. Okay, so pretty much right at term, the early part of term. I'm no longer preemie. Yeah. Uh, and then I have all these questions. Are you allowed to start driving again? I remember Dr. Tabish telling me after I got the surclage put in, I was like, how long do I have to have restrictions? And he was like, once I have the surclage out, he was like, you can go dancing for all I care. Well, that's not what you were missing. Yeah. So it seems like I can kind of do whatever I want after the surclage is out. Well, it'd be nice like to have that kind of intimacy with your husband before the baby comes, because then it kind of goes on another little break. That's what I've heard. <laughs> That's what I heard. My wife hired a Brinks security guard to stand by her bedroom door for like three months. Yeah, man. I hear it's like. I was like, know, dude, can you get me my socks? Like, please just pass them to me. They're the something. Anyway. <laughs> okay, cool. So, that, I mean, is that exciting to you that you'll just at least not, first of all, the, the fear of the baby coming early, prematurely, and then also your ability to kind of resume your activity so you can work out. Yeah, I can work out. You know, it's funny because a couple of weeks, maybe it was like a month, a month, a month and a half after I got the surclage put in, you know, I'm going to all these appointments and I'm being so annoying. I'm like, so can I do anything? Can I go on a walk? Can I like, you know, <laughs> and like every appointment they're like, okay, you can go on like a 10 minute walk. You can go on like a 15 minute walk. <laughs> and so I've been able to go on some walks the past couple of weeks. And, you know, when I got the surclage out, I told my husband, I was like, oh, we're going to go on walks we moved to a neighborhood i was like we're gonna walk around and i walk like 15 minutes and i'm like (sighs) just like heavy breathing yeah i'm like i'm not going on these extravagant walks that i thought i was going on but i'll at least not feel fearful of it once let's just say i'm not a medical doctor i have no idea how they make these decisions but it sort of sounds like you know, the CDC talking about how long you have to quarantine if you were exposed or with a mask, without a mask, but you know, if you're symptomatic or asymptomatic, five days, 10 days, okay, seven days, but it's just sort of like, oh, this is what feels right today. How do we know? I don't believe there's a textbook that says, okay, 10 minute walk is okay today, but you know, and then eventually 15. Can I tell you that I think that that is something that I have felt incredibly frustrated by and you actually put me on to Emily Oster's book but you know I've similarly to her felt so frustrated because you have these appointments and you know you get it the doctors are coming from a place of like they'd rather be on the side of caution and you know for liable reasons for their souls like for all these different reasons they're like we don't want you to do anything because we just want you and the baby to get there okay and they deal with so many tragic you know, ends to these pregnancies all the time and they just don't want to see it happen to you. But it does create quite a black and white kind of like, I think there's a lot more gray that we could be, you know, making these decisions out of that I think sometimes the medical world are just 
not interested in playing with because they just don't want the consequences of what it could sure. And then the thing about risk is it's very individual. So I think Emily Esther's point, her book is called Expecting Better. I think her point is that, you know, just tell me like what the pros and cons are, what the factual data is, what chances there that something will go wrong and, you know, what type of thing would happen. And, you know, if I do this or don't do this, and then some people would say, oh, that's something I want to do. And they'll do it, even though there's some amount of risk involved. They don't find it to be risky or the reward for doing it is well worth whatever risk there may be. And for other people, they might go completely the other way. And so, you know, for a healthy, rational person, it's kind of like we want, a lot of people don't, but I think a lot of people do want them to say, these are the pros and cons, the the data as we know it. Here's my recommendation, but ultimately the choice is yours. 100%. And that is rare to get that for everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I'm not blaming doctors. Like oh, they, Their hands are tied in so many different ways with yeah. liability. And it's true. Like Even if they advise you one way or the other and you make your choice and something comes up that didn't go well, they are on the hot seat. 100%. And the ones that really care and are invested, it's like, you know, they feel defeated because they like, we're like, yeah, you can do this. And now, you know, I imagine it's a lot of weight to carry, but it doesn't make it any easier for the person on the other. No, no. It's a very challenging system that we're all stuck in. Okay. The baby's coming soon-ish. You said at the beginning, you're ideal, like, because you're so vegan, except for the honey and the eggs. And you guys are very (laughs) natural minded people that you would have considered a home birth, but then you had the low platelets even before you uh, got pregnant, although they're holding steady. So you probably wouldn't be risked out of a home birth at this point. Mm-hmm. And then the cerclage and the risk of premature birth, you went with the hospital birth. Does it mean you still want like more of a natural uninterventive birth? Yeah. I mean, I would love, and I've expressed to my OB and she's been really supportive of it you know, Dr. Mercy kind of leans towards a more holistic way of practicing in general. But, you know, I think that my goal is to do this unmedicated. I do feel a little intimidated being in a space where I know that that is not the like common thing that people go there to do. And it feels a little bit like pushing a boulder up a hill and then having to deliver a baby once you get there. Oh, I was like, that might be what it feels like towards the end. Yeah. Like literally, Seriously. you know, the boulders, like the hospital system, <laughs> and, like, yeah. you know, uh, but for me, the boulders, the baby that too. Yeah. There's a lot of boulder pushing going on. A lot of, maybe I got two. <laughs> like I'm just two <laughs> up the hill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is the hospital system. I don't know. It's different than a home birth. The ingredient that makes a home birth a home birth is pretty much the home. But you could have a very, like my wife, I say we, but it feels like it was mostly her, had a really beautiful unmedicated birth at the hospital with our first baby and the next two after that. And then we did a home birth with the fourth. Again, mostly her. I was sleeping. But... It can be done. And like you said, your doctor knows what you want and she's pretty supportive. And because I think you're in... Los Angeles and the more earthy part of Los Angeles, especially like you're not the first one to walk in there and say, this is what I want. Exactly. That's kind of what I'm, I'm hoping for. And I have a doula, which I uh, think also help. Oh yeah. What's in your mind? What's the role of the doula? 
I really am hoping that my doula can really just advocate for me and help ground me in what it is I said I wanted in the moments that I feel ungrounded and unable to really hold tight to what that was. And I also am looking, you know, I think to her to help guide me in what's going to be best for me and the baby. You know, there, I feel like so many people lead to having medicated births and whatnot. It's mostly because of the laboring, right? It's like how long your labor is. Do you have the energy to get the baby out of your body? Like, and especially with the hospital system, you're kind of put on a clock in a way that you're not in a home birth kind of environment. And so, you know, I think it's also looking to her just for transparency of like, Hey, like you should do this like now, like you physically, like for you and for the baby need help with this or no, this is what you wanted. (laughs) You know, you can push through this. You're just feeling pain right now. Like I'm looking for some guidance and what the difference of like when I'm being stubborn and when I'm needing to be open-minded. Yeah, I think it's also like we were talking about before, how nice it would be if someone could tell you, hey, these are the options in front of you. Here's some pros and cons of both. Which one do you want to do? And that person sometimes is there at the hospital, could be your doctor or labor and delivery nurse. Sometimes they're not there and certainly not handpicked by you, those nurses. So So your team is going to be you, your husband, your doula. Mm -hmm some kind of nurses in between that you don't know who they are yet. And then eventually your doctor, Mm -hmm. you feel good about the team. I do feel good about the team. My doula Hayes, she's been really lovely and I really dig her energy. And I dig that she is of the world that I feel, I guess more, I don't want to say more kinship with, because I, I have such respect for the medical world, but just the way that I live my life on an everyday basis is more aligned with, I think, some of her philosophy. Than oh, totally. Super what? earthy, holistic. She does sure. a, ton, a ton. I've done births with her in the hospital and in home. I'm trying to think if I've done some in birthing center, but uh, in many different settings. And she's a very, very interesting, unique energy that she brings to a birth. Yeah. And just so, like, lifts you up. It makes you feel like I can do anything. And she's then, such a light. Yeah, it's total light. Beautiful. Okay. As you are getting closer, are there any things in your mind that you think besides the people, the great people around you will help you during the more challenging times? You know, I think that I'm really looking to Chris, you know, Hayes always says this, um, great thing about partners during birth. She's like, you know, you're not an expert on birth or how to do this, but you're an expert on your partner. And so I think I'm really looking for like the camaraderie of having Chris on my team and, you know, trusting that I have the right people from my OB to my doula to Chris, just to advocate for me and really just kind of give me the courage when it's starting to (laughs) dim a little bit. Sure, as it does for most people at various points, you know. Are you going to try to labor at home first for a bit? Yes, and that's actually something my OB has really encouraged, which I think her approach on that even just made me feel like, okay, you're on the same page as me and you're 
aligned with what it is I'm trying to do. She was like, labor at home for as long as you can. She was like, I want you to do that in a comfortable space. And, you know, when you get to a point where you feel like you can't handle it anymore, then come to the hospital. She's like, I don't want you, you know, having to deal with that environment for too long if you don't have to. A lot of people struggle with sadness, baby blues, or depression after a baby comes, especially in the first few months. You've had that even before pregnancy. So are you concerned about what that might be like for you, that transition? Totally. That has definitely been something that me and my therapist have spoken about and we're kind of in the process of getting me in to just see a psychiatrist maybe before the baby comes just so I have one kind of on deck that like specializes in postpartum just because I think we're both aware like statistically typically people that suffer from depression have higher like chances of experiencing it after birth and I'm kind of mentally preparing it's like on one hand it's really difficult to have this experience and have depression because there's this whole element of guilt that's introduced to your experience with depression oh do you know where that comes from probably hmm. your one percent Jewish gene totally right that's what I think too I mean it's very intense yeah because you did 23 and me and you found out you're mostly Jewish I'm yeah Pretty much, at least one percent. One percent. Do you know which side you get your one percent from? You know, I want to say that it's actually. Oh, I don't know. My family's ethnicity on both sides is such like a beautiful, messy conglomerate that I would think it's from my dad's side, but my mom's side always throw some monkey wrenches in there. She's like, oh yeah, did you know that, you know, your grandma was half Puerto Rican? I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Now I do. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So you do have a spicy potpourri of uh, jeans in there. Yeah. yeah, So the guilt might come from that 1%. Yeah. I think that the guilt comes from there. So yeah, I'm mentally and emotionally prepared for having to experience that after. And I'm just kind of reminding myself now that the superpower of having experienced depression for so many years is that I know what it is and that I can at least not be overwhelmed by like, what is this sensation? Cause it's like, Oh, my old friend, like <laughs> we're reacquainted. <laughs> oh yeah. And you'll still have that support afterwards. I love that you're preparing for it, you know? Yeah literally preparing for it uh, with your therapist and having in place the tools that you might need if it comes to that. It's very hard afterwards, like when you don't have those things set up and in place, it's very hard to do something new and go for help. And so it often goes very undiagnosed, untreated and spirals uh, in a way that, you know, hopefully you won't have it at all. But if you do, in a way that you'll catch it quickly and deal with it swiftly. You said I have a psychiatrist ready in case you need them. Does that mean you're not medicating now? No, I've actually not. I took antidepressants a couple of years. It was actually before I met Chris. So it was five plus years ago, or maybe I was just dating Chris when I was getting off of them. And I decided to kind of go off of them and I haven't been on them ever since. And there's been a couple of times during pregnancy that my therapist was just like, you know, you know that you can, like, you know, that like, that's something that is accessible to you. And I was really resistant to wanting to do that during pregnancy. And, you know, I think that because I've experienced depression for so many years, 
I have felt the real low lows of my depression and it didn't quite get to a place where I felt like it was dangerous for me. So I was like, I think that I can manage this with therapy and some of the other like tools. I mean, food has really been helpful. So I can do that. (laughs) My therapist is high in carbohydrates. Right. But you know, and I, and I think honestly, I'm, I'm so grateful. My mom and Chris and my dad, they're, they're so, so supportive of my depression and so aware that it's a thing and have really just like smothered me in support and love throughout my pregnancy and really helped combat some of my depression with me, which I really appreciate. Uh, I love that you recognize it head on, that you talk about it. I mean, you're an amazing human. And I think a lot of people that struggle with any kind of mental health issue are just always so afraid to be stigmatized or labeled or talk about it. And I think someone can look at you and be like, oh, you know what? She's normal, cool, awesome, successful. And, you know, it's probably because she's an amazing chiropractor. Duh. But, duh. (laughs) But, you know, she has depression. It's like we each have our thing, you know, she's dealing with it. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that and not having a TMI button. Of course. I don't think it'll ever go away. So I'm here whenever you want. (laughs) Thank you. You know, we're going to do something. All right. Brianna, I'm going to let you go. Finish gestating and have your kid. I do have this question. Where can we find you online? You can probably best find me online on my Instagram, Mm. which is Brianna Nicole, B-R-I-A-N-A-N-I-C-O-L-E-E-E. Oh, E. Triple E. Yeah, not um, just two E's. Two E's is like E, but three yeah. E's is like E. E, you know? Yeah. I'd say that's probably the best place you can find my, you know, pro animal, love yourself post on a regular okay. basis. I mean, why so many E's? You know, I kind of think that Brianna Nicole was just like taken. So I was like, how do I make this work for myself? And I just added three E's because I was like, who would want to do that? And it was available. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the logic paid off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brianna Nicole E. Thank you again for being on here. We will talk to you again, hopefully in probably just a few weeks, and find out the rest of the story at home. If you'd like to connect with us, you can visit us on Instagram at Dr. Berlin, D-O-C-T-O-R, B-E-R-L-I-N. <laughs>